So as we, as we turn to God's word, um, you might want to kind of get that open and handy. Uh, we'll be in Revelation chapter 2 once again. So you can get a finger in that. And uh, So here's the thing. Does anybody remember when we had a life-size dinosaur over here one time at Youthquake? Speaking of Youthquake, that, that was kind of one of my favorite Youthquake decorations that we ever had. Um, you might have heard about something going on with some other giant animals recently. Uh, I don't think my remote's working here, Christy. Can you just, can you just get us to... Yeah. <laughs> you might have heard that some town in Norway built a bigger and better moose. And it is better, let's be honest. It's shiny and fancy, and I, I did hear someone who might have been on a late-night show describe Mac the Moose as some kind of papier-mâché monstrosity that we stole from an amusement park. Um, maybe I'm just biased. My grandpa lived in Moose Jaw his whole adult life, and he hated Mac and said it looked like an elephant with a moose's head, but... Fraser told me, the mayor of Moose Jaw, right, he's made a press conference where, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to build him bigger and fancier and reclaim our rightful title, and I'll say no more on that. Um, but giant animal statues can kind of be a, a source of major conflict. Now, you might have heard about a more famous ancient story involving a giant animal statue uh, that was of a less friendly nature. Uh, the Trojan Horse, if anybody's ever heard of that. This, this story is a very old one that was made into a movie not that long ago. And the Trojan Horse, of course, was the, uh, the deceptive trick that brought the famous Trojan War to an end. In case you haven't been delving into your, your Greek legends recently, we'll just do a little refreshing here. Uh, so it all started when Paris of Troy made a deal with the gods which enabled him to seduce Helen of Sparta and abduct her from her husband Menelos, taking her back across the Aegean Sea with him to Troy, which gets us in the neighborhood of the seven churches of Revelation, by the way. So there's, there is method in my madness. Menelos, he was not happy about this, as you can well imagine, and so he got this big coalition together with his, with his big bigger, more powerful brother, Agamemnon, and they got this flotilla of ships and they sailed across the Aegean Sea to, to like fight this war of vengeance and passion. And they besieged Troy, and it lasted for 10 years, and they were not able to besiege it and conquer it, even though they had mighty warriors like Odysseus and Achilles. In the end, Odysseus came up with a plan. So the Greeks built this giant wooden horse, so the story goes, and they hid some of their best men inside the horse, and then they all got on their ships, and they sailed away. And the Trojans were kind of puzzled about this, but they thought, oh, I guess they've surrendered and gone back to Greece, and they've left us this giant horse statue as a sort of tribute, like maybe it was going to be our claim to fame as biggest horse statue in the ancient world or something. And so in their pride and their vanity, they hooked ropes onto it, and they hauled it through the gates of their city and held a big festival and were carousing late into the night. And while they were carousing and getting drunk, the, the soldiers hidden inside the horse got out took the city gates, killed the guards there, and opened the gates, and meanwhile their comrades had sailed back and landed, and they came pouring into the city and overthrew it, and Troy was defeated. 
What they weren't able to do in 10 years of direct and deadly conflict, they did in one day by deception and trickery and a much more subtle form of attack. Today, we have a similar warning in Scripture, as we will see. As we typically do, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll look at something where we need to be on guard against a similar problem. Today we're looking at the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. You may have a seat. So Pergamum, or, or Pergamus in some translations, is a bit of an interesting city. If we, we, I think we have a map here. You can kind of see where some of the cities are. Uh, in, the, in what we would now call Turkey, uh, over there kind of in, the, in that area. There's, you can see Greece and Turkey on the map there. Uh, Pergamum is kind of the northernmost city out of the seven. We looked at Ephesus a couple of weeks ago, Ephesus being sort of the, the largest city of the bunch, the, the kind of big, trading, wealthy city. Pergamum, however, was, was the provincial capital of Roman Asia. So I guess if you, you were to compare them to Canadian cities, Ephesus was sort of like Toronto, and Pergamum was more like Ottawa. Like, not as big, not as, as influential and powerful, but in a way, uh, sort of the seat of, of official government, and could also lay claim to being the foremost city of that area. It had a, a healing center, or temple, devoted to the god uh, Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine. And the symbol of Asclepius was a staff with a serpent winding around it, which, interestingly enough, you might still know today. You see paramedics, EMTs, wear this symbol still uh, on their uniforms, and it's on the ambulance. Uh, Some would say this goes even further back than the Greeks. It goes back all the way to Moses and the bronze serpent that was put on the pole when there was a plague, and and people that looked to it were, were healed In any case, Smyrna had not only this temple, they had other temples. And they had been the first, or sorry, Smyrna had been the first to build a temple to the goddess Roma, the deification of the Roman Empire. But Pergamum had been the first to build a temple to actually worship the emperor himself as a god. So this was a city with many different temples, pagan temples. And this is where Christians were trying to figure out how to live their faith. And in the midst of this all, John writes to them the words of Jesus, and Jesus, first of all, assures them, I know. I know where you live, he says. Because like so many places, then and now, this was a tough place to live devotedly as a follower of Christ. 
And so Jesus addresses these people. I know where you live. I know, I know that there are pressures to compromise your faith. I know that there are idol temples. I know that there's pressure to worship the emperor as God and, and proclaim Caesar is Lord. I know these pressures. I know that you live in a hard place. I know you live in a place where you're constantly having to decide between what is ideal and what is, is expedient or practical. How do you live in that way? How do you be in the world and not of it? What, what, is, what is just stubborn and unhelpful legalism versus what is just wicked cultural assimilation? And how do you walk the line between those two? But it gets worse than that. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, Jesus says. In case you hadn't caught on yet, Jesus, through the words of the Apostle John, he's not exactly what you might call politically correct. Right? He just says, the town you live in is where Satan has his throne. We don't exactly know even what he's specifically referring to here. There are a number of things it could be, all these, these pagan temples, worshiping the emperor, worshiping other gods. But whatever it is, it is not good to, to live in a place where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives there. Here's the thing. Stuff can look good on the outside, we can, have, we can have culture, we can have sporting events and universities and libraries and art galleries and fine architecture, but under things that look good on the outside, there can be sinister forces at work. This is the society in which Christians must live. Now, in our society, and it was the case for Christians in Pergamum. So how bad had it gotten? Well, someone had lost his life for the cause of Christ. Jesus mentions Antipas, uh, his faithful witness, or, or martyr, same word. We don't know if this man Antipas was the only one who had lost his life, or quite what, the, again, we don't know the background of this situation, but he is especially singled out for his faithfulness in following the Lord in spite of persecution. We don't know, like I said, what happened. Maybe he refused to burn incense to the emperor. Maybe he started speaking out against the dark and sinister forces underlying so much of their civic culture. Maybe he was officially executed on trumped-up charges. Maybe he was just the victim of some kind of lynch mob violence, uh, kind of like Stephen was in the book of Acts. We just don't know. But we do know, however, that this man died for his faith and was called a faithful witness. Which is interesting, because if you flip back over the page, or depending on the layout of your Bible, if you just flip back to chapter 1 of Revelation, it's the same title that's given to the Lord Jesus right near the beginning of the book. Jesus, in the vision that John has, of Jesus in his glory and power and, and his ruling authority, he's called the faithful and true witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth. Do you see what's going on here? Revelation is a, is a very dense book with lots of symbolism and lots of connections to itself within the book. And then you've got all these connections even to the Old Testament. There's a lot to try to figure out. It's very dense. But you see here, this man Antipas is called a faithful witness. 
And Jesus Christ is the ultimate faithful and true witness. And then it goes on and says he's the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Like Jesus, Antipas laid down his life as a witness to his faith and hope in God. And like Jesus, Antipas thus inherits the promised resurrection to eternal life beyond death. Remember how in the very first message I proposed that with Jesus, what does kill you makes you stronger? Antipas gets to inherit that as well. He laid down his er earthly life, but was raised to a new life, indestructible, like his Lord Jesus. In becoming like Jesus, Antipas firsthand experienced the reality of this truth. Jesus goes on to say that these people hold fast to his name and have not denied their faith in him. In other words, as our series title puts it, they didn't stop believing. They kept on believing, in other words, trusting, remaining faithful, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, even when it was costly, even when it meant the possibility and even the reality of loss, even loss of life, even if it meant death, in the case of at least one member of their family of faith. Here again, it's quite possible that we have the imperial cult in view for Christians, completing the civic requirement to, to burn incense to Caesar and proclaim him as Lord amounted to denying their faith in Jesus. It was literally not holding to the name of Jesus. It meant literally substituting a different name other than the name of Jesus as Lord and God. Instead of saying Jesus is Lord, saying Caesar is Lord. It's literally a substitution. And these people were holding fast to the name of Jesus and not putting in a different name as Lord and God. I think we all have some idea what it means to hold fast to something, right? Like I was telling the kids about here. The favorite toy that you didn't want to share with your brothers and sisters and you grabbed that thing so tight that they could pull it to pieces trying to get it away from you. When I was a kid, I had this dog. His name was Sam. He was a pretty nice dog. Typical farm dog. Kind of a mutt. Uh, I think he was actually really smart, as, as some dogs can be, but he was so smart that he was kind of not cooperative much of the time. He, he loved catching and fetching, and so you'd throw the ball, and he'd, he'd catch it, he'd go chase it down, wherever, no matter how far or hard you threw it, he'd go find it, and he'd faithfully bring it back the way dogs do, but he never really seemed to understand the spitting the ball out part. Uh, so, you know, I'd be like, he'd come and, and look at me, and Spit the ball out, boy. And he just kind of do that the way dogs do. You know, they tilt their head to one side and look at me. And I'd put out my hand. You know, how are you supposed to teach a dog? Like, give the ball. And, you know, you try to reward him if he's good. But he never was. He just wouldn't give the ball back, no matter what you tried to do to teach him. So then, I, okay, well, if we want to keep playing, I'm going to have to take the ball back. Sometimes he'd let you. But if he was feeling particularly stubborn, he would get a hold of that ball and no matter what you did, you could not get it out of his teeth. And of course, by this time, the ball's kind of all dog slobbery, and he has teeth that are sharp, and I've just got fingers, and I'm trying to... And if he was really stubborn, I could lift his front paws off the ground, and his jaws would still be locked tight onto that ball, and he would not 
let it go no matter what you did. And it's kind of a silly story, but I think it shows something of the kind of single-minded, stubborn determination to not let go of what you believe to be the most valuable. If you are a dog, that is probably your ball. If you are a Christian, that means the lordship of Jesus. Right? No matter what happens, no matter what people try to trick you in, just, just worship the emperor a little bit, it's fine. No, I will not do that. I will not compromise. I am holding tight to this name of Jesus. So that's great. The, the Christians in Pergamum are standing fast. They're holding to the name of Jesus. Sort of. There are some who are not just holding to the name of Jesus. They're also holding to some other things. Some people were holding, same word, to other teachings. And this is where it gets really interesting. Some were, it says, holding to the teachings of Balaam. And some were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, scholars don't all agree, but I think I agree with those that say this is probably just two different kind of names for the same thing. Depends a little bit on what you do with the beginning of verse 15. Some translations have also, whereas others have something like in this way. I think I'd go with the latter. So they're holding to the teachings of Balaam. In this way, they're holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Probably two kind of ways of getting at the same thing. So can we put together what was going on? Well, to understand that, we need to look at the story of Balaam. You remember the story of Balaam from your Sunday school classes? Anybody? Hands up. Balaam? Yeah? Story about a talking donkey, right? Well, maybe it's about a little bit more than that. Um, It's found in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25. I'll try to get us through this as quickly as possible, but it's important that we see kind of what's relevant for our text today. So, as this story opens, you've got the people of Israel. They've been wandering in the desert, and it's coming time. Those are great faces, by the way. Thanks. (laughs) They've been wandering in the desert for some time, and it's getting time that they need to enter the promised land. And they're on kind of the borders. The, the promised land that Israel was to be given is, was surrounded by some other smaller kind of satellite nations, Moab and Edom and a few of these others. And they're there, right on the edge of it, and the king of Moab, is, he's getting nervous because the Israelites are right on his front door. His name is Balak, and he decides to do something about this. And like many people at this time and in these cultures, he's a pretty religious or kind of superstitious guy. And so he decides what he's going to do is find some kind of a prophet, magician, wizard type figure to put a curse on the people of Israel. And so he hires this guy called Balaam, who the Bible tells us is a prophet. And it seems that he kind of is actually in touch with the true God But he's not really a good character either. It's very mysterious. It's kind of like he's dabbling in things that he doesn't really understand. And sometimes that maybe actually puts him in touch with the real God. But he's messing with stuff that's way, way beyond him. At any rate, he agrees to this deal to curse the people of Israel. He sets out on his way on his donkey. And he can't go. The donkey keeps trying to turn him back. Because the donkey sees that the angel of the Lord is there trying to prevent him from going. But Balaam can't see it. And he gets mad at the donkey and hits the donkey. And then the donkey is enabled to speak with a human voice and warn him, don't go because God doesn't want you to go. But if you must go, don't say anything more than what God tells you to say. And so Balaam decides, okay, he's still going to go. And uh, he gets there. 
and he does the, the rituals and makes the sacrifices to put a curse on the people of Israel. But every time he tries to talk, he can't curse Israel. All he ends up doing is blessing them, essentially. He does this four times, and each time Balak, the king of Moab, he's not happy about this because I'm paying you money to curse my enemies, and you're blessing them instead. And so after the fourth time, he just Balaam goes home. Israel is not cursed. The king of Moab is disappointed. And then in chapter 25, we have another story. Some of the Moabite women come into the camp of the people of Israel and seduce some of the men. These men not only commit adultery with these women, but they end up participating in the worship of the Moabite gods, and that's probably actually one and the same thing because a lot of ancient Near Eastern religions were fertility cults. At any rate, where Balaam's attempts to curse the people of Israel had failed, this works, and it does bring the wrath of God down on the people of Israel. So what actually happened here? Is there a connection between up to chapter 24 and then what happens in chapter 25? Yes. In Numbers 31, 16, a few chapters later, we get a little bit more. And there Moses indicates that this whole thing with the Moabite women coming into the camp of Israel to, to tempt the men of Israel was... Balaam's idea, right? Where I can imagine Balaam and Balak, the king of Moab, having this final conversation where Balaam's like, look, I can't curse them, but you know what might work? And now I'm just going to take my exit. That seems to be something like what happened. Now maybe that discussion of the Trojan horse at the beginning starting to make a little bit more sense where the all-out direct assault to just simply defeat the enemy failed Trickery and deception won the day, right? The appeal to temptation rather than just the direct conflict worked. This has actually worked in all sorts of conflicts. And this seems to be what was happening at this church in Pergamum. Lots of people were standing firm against the pressure to actively renounce their faith by proclaiming Caesar as Lord and worshiping the emperor. But there was a significant number that were caving to more subtle pressures. We don't know exactly what the issues were. Our earlier reading uh, from one of Peter's letters also compared false teachers in his context to Balaam. So this seems to be a common comparison at the time. And it's likely that there were similarities. Greed for financial gain, lust for sexual pleasures, and pride in having power and influence over others. All were wrapped up in some very spiritual, elitist kind of sounding language, no doubt. This likely involved some kind of compromise or syncretism with the pagan uh, mystery religions and the way they worshipped, which often involved sexual immorality because they were mystery or fertility religions. So this all goes hand in hand, and it seems that these false teachers are influencing the church in Pergamum to get caught up in some of this, as though this is a way to find deeper spirituality, and it's, it's finding its way in the church. I think the language here is so telling. There is, on the one hand, there's holding fast to Jesus and his name. But on the other, there's holding to these other teachings of Balaam or the Nicolaitans. And the problem is we don't always recognize the latter because some of it doesn't come in really obvious forms. Even if it should be obvious, it gets introduced secretly. We find ourselves compromised. 
And as we saw with the Ephesian church, this sort of compromise brings the promise of the Lord's judgment. Interestingly here, it seems the Lord is mainly threatening judgment against this wayward compromised group with the false teachers, not the entire congregation. He says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This might be, might be some measure of comfort to those that haven't followed this false teaching, but not too much, right? Don't, don't take comfort like, well, I've not done this. Those of us maybe who are leaders bear some responsibility for the things that are going on that are wrong, even if we haven't directly participated in them. Now, this isn't to start a witch hunt and, and just go crazy rounding up people that disagree on minor points of theology with you. This isn't a, a call to just boot everybody out of the church who honestly struggles with some sort of sin. That's not what this is all about. But it is a call to take seriously the call to live holy lives and a call to take seriously where we might find ourselves compromising in our faith. So here's the thing. We live a pretty, pretty sheltered existence here in Karenport. This community is, I would say, hardly uh, the place where Satan has his throne. Uh, we're kind of this weird socio-demographic outlier. I suspect if you looked at every community in Canada and compared like regular church attendance to overall population size, the ratio here would just skew like so hard. It's probably, it's probably skewing the entire data of the province just because we're such an outlier. But that doesn't mean we can just be like, well, all good here. We, uh, we're doing pretty good. Thank you very much. This church doesn't really apply to us, nor do its warnings. The main point I want us to see that we need to take away is to beware of the the subtle kind of backdoor attack on our faith because complacency can be such a dangerous thing. And let me be clear, complacency in some areas and fervent zeal and commitment in other areas are not incompatible. Look at the church in Pergamum. They were committed so much in some areas that one guy was even willing to die for his faith. But in other areas, they were terribly compromised and allowing all kinds of things into their church that were destructive. These existed in the same church. Last Sunday, if you were here, Pastor Andrew posed some questions to us about how we would be willing to stand in the face of persecution if it ever came. How we would be willing to stand in the face of direct opposition to our faith. If our church was threatened, I remember him talking about this, if our church was threatened, if, if somebody somehow publicized that, that there was, there, there was going to be, they were going to attack us in some way or threaten that, would we all stay home or would, would we still boldly come and worship? If reading the Bible was banned, would, would you still do it? And I think a lot of us would. We would do these things. Quite frequently, uh, a direct kind of threat or pressure like that, it galvanizes a response, especially if you've got a critical mass of people standing firm with you. You, you might be quite willing to take risks and stand firm, even in the face of direct opposition. When it's direct and when it's clear and when it's obvious, 
Sometimes that prompts us to stand against it. I suspect if people tried to do this, it would defeat their purpose if they tried to ban the Bible or ban church attendance. People would start doing it more likely. But what if no one is saying you can't do those things, which they aren't really? What if there's just other alternatives? Right? What, if no, what if nobody is saying you can't read the Bible and if we catch you reading the Bible, you'll, you'll be fined or put in prison? If no one's saying that, but there's just other temptations, you know, Netflix or TV sports or something. What if nobody's saying you can't pray to, to the Lord Jesus but there's, uh, there's social media first thing in the morning, and there's, oh, there's other things to do, sports scores to check, and memes to look at. What if nobody says you can't go to church, but instead there's, oh, there's, a, there's a tournament, or it's cold outside, or any number of other things? You see what we do? We willingly choose to do the thing that we would call persecution if it was forced on us, so long as it can kind of be packaged up in the form of a, of a pleasurable diversion or distraction. We will freely choose it, in fact. You see, what we're doing to ourselves is kind of like pulling that, hooking the ropes on and pulling the Trojan horse inside our city gates. It's like falling for the, those two easily available women that the the enemy nation sent over. I'm not trying to be a legalist here. And I'm not trying to be superior. All of these things that I mentioned as diversions, I do them too. I think we all do. It's easy to have good intentions about reading the Bible uh, through in a year and by the end of January, you're already so far behind that you're ready to give up. Uh, it's, It's so easy to have good intentions about spending a half hour or an hour in prayer in the morning and sometimes we only manage five minutes because we're distracted by other things and I do these too. But here's the thing and I'm pretty sure I've said this before. It's not legalism to take an axe to something that's slowly poisoning your soul. Sometimes you need to cut that root out. The church in Pergamum let in false teachers that brought assimilation, and capitulation to the broader culture. Now, we might pride ourselves, wow, we've not let any false teachers into our church. We've got the best, you know, we've got people that are faithful teachers, and we do, right? We've got Dr. Wes Olmsted and Ken Ginter and other faithful teachers teaching our Sunday school class. We're careful about who we let proclaim God's word. Either directly from the pulpit or, or in, in other ways. So perhaps we've not let in anything like that formally. But here's the thing. You, you can be on your guard against false teachers in the, in the kind of religious or doctrinal sphere, but still fall for things in, in the kind of lifestyle sphere that are just materialistic and worldly and no different than our wider secular culture. We might not let them in through the doors of our church to give them a platform here, but what about through the portals of our our internet connections, our satellite dishes, to give them a platform even in our own homes? What's coming into our homes that's shaping the way we think and what we hold is important? So what do we do? How do we stand firm? How do we hold fast to Jesus in the face of overt and in the face of more subtle temptations? 
I don't know that there is one right answer, but I'll mention a few things. Take a step back from media. We probably, in fact, we can't, turn back the tide of technology. I mean, there are people that try. We've got, you know, even Hutterites that live around us or the Amish, but even they are having to deal with what technology you allow in and what you don't, and they, they're, they're part of this too. It's, it's just they're a bit further behind the rest of us, but it's affecting them. You can't turn it back. You, you can't turn that off entirely. But maybe, maybe we don't need to have the faucet on full blast all the time, like drinking the world's media through a fire hose, right? You can turn the TV or the computer off. You can put the phone down and log out of some apps. Fifteen years ago, like when I was in college, I was a grown-up. I, it's not like this was back in the 1930s or something. We didn't have any of this stuff. In living memory of young people, we didn't have this stuff. And we didn't die from it. We all lived. Maybe we should learn how to do that a little bit once again. Question what you do let through. Like, a lot. And I'm not talking about whether the movie has swear words in it or whether it shows private parts or something. We get so fixated on some of those things, and it's good to be concerned about those. But sometimes we get so fixated on two or three criteria like that that we don't realize that this, this program or this, this show or whatever is just a totally worldly kind of worldview that's teaching us to value the things of the world and our culture and make an idol out of success, money, to, to laugh at things we probably ought not to laugh at. Right? I'm talking about what do these things teach us to value as ultimately important? Do they teach us to, to hold to the things that are true and right and good, as the Apostle Paul tells us, to think about those things? Right? Is what we let through into our lives, is it teaching us to value the things that the Lord Jesus values, to think the way he thinks, to evaluate things the way he evaluates them? Number three, question your family's commitment to things like extracurriculars and entertainment, right? Everything you say yes to is going to mean saying no to some other things, right? And we might say, I I would never actively deny my faith, but we all have choices to make with what we do with our time, what our family does with its time. That's just how life works. Time is not infinite. We need to be careful about what we're saying yes to And the flip side of that, what we're saying no to. And we need to honestly ask ourselves, how is this going to pay off in the long run? Is this teaching our children to value value worship, to value being together with other Christians as the Lord's people? What's it teaching them? They're watching. The things that we cultivate in our homes are going to be where our families end up. But lest we beat ourselves up too much, Contrary to our cultural understanding, a little self-criticism every once in a while is probably not a bad thing. It's not the greatest of all evils, but lest we go overboard, let's look back to Jesus as we conclude. He has some promises for us. In the beginning of this passage, in the beginning of each of these passages to the churches, Jesus, through John, reiterates some aspect of that vision from chapter 1. And in this case, it says that Jesus holds the sharp two-edged sword. This, this, of course, is a symbol of judgment 
and authority, right? We're, you remember the scripture that says the authorities don't, don't bear the sword in vain? It's, it's a symbol of judgment and authority. And this should be a great comfort because it reminds us that it's Jesus, not our surrounding culture, not political talking heads, not ideologues, mouthpieces for this or that viewpoint in our culture that hold ultimate authority. They're not the ultimate authority. It might seem like it. It might seem like that's how the world works, but that's not ultimately how things will work. Jesus will hold the ultimate authority of judgment, to judge what is right from what is wrong, to judge what is true from what is false. And we can trust that and take comfort in that, even if the world around us tells us that what we're believing is not good and not right and not true. So let's always remember that. It is Jesus that holds the authority of judgment. And there are a couple of promises at the end, too. Jesus has promises for those who conquer or, or overcome or are victorious, depending on your, your translations. The Greeks personified victory as the goddess Nike, for whom the athletic company of the same name took their, took their name. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if it's all Olympic medals. I know it's the Summer Olympic medals for sure. They have the, the design on the front that is unique to whatever Olympiad it is. But on the back, all Olympic medals in the Summer Games at any rate still have a depiction of the Greek goddess Nike on the back, the winged goddess of victory. Uh, usually this goddess was portrayed in athletic contests like that. I think we've talked about the idea of the, the crown of leaves that was presented to the winners in athletic games back in ancient times. There are many examples of sculptures depicting Nike awarding a victor's crown. But again, to, to sort of take that, a common cultural thing in their world, and then say, well, actually, no. Actually, no, it is not this that's not what victory looks like. That's not the ultimate reward. It is Jesus who gives the victor's crown. And it is a far better crown than a medal that you hang around your neck or some leaves that you put on your head. It is Jesus that is the one that ultimately determines what victory looks like and rewards those who are victorious. It's not the gods and idols of our world who hold our reward. It is Jesus. And he promises us two things as to what that reward is. The hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Of all the re rewards promised to these churches, these are kind of two of the weirdest ones. And we're closing now, so we're not going... We could spend hours digging to the different scholarly opinions about what the hidden manna is and what the white stone represents. What is important, and they don't agree anyhow, so we'd be here all day. What is important for us to grasp is that these things are symbols of our eternal reward that we're going to receive from the Lord Jesus. And the promise of a new name, specifically, that's such a beautiful thing. You can't, you can't name yourself. Someone else gives you a name. And it's the same here. We're trusting that the Lord Jesus is the one who is ultimately going to give us a name. In this case, a new name, a unique name. It doesn't matter doesn't matter how our culture labels us and what names they might call us. If they call us bigots or, or haters or intolerant or any of the other things that our culture might call us and even are calling us at the present for 
the stand that we take and, and the love that we have for the Lord Jesus. They might call us all kinds of things, but it doesn't matter because what matters is the name that the Lord gives us. He will give us a new name, it says, and that is a name that will last forever. I'll close with the words of Isaiah 62, where God promises a name of righteousness and holiness to his people. In Isaiah 62, it says, Behold, the Lord has promised to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, the people of God, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And listen to this. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. That's the name that will be ours in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for the warning that this text brings us. Sometimes these things make us uncomfortable, but it is important that we thank you in your love and your goodness and kindness for warning us of perils that we should avoid. And we see here the danger of standing really strong in some areas of our faith or of our doctrine and yet falling for things that are maybe less obvious in in our lifestyles or our teaching or, or the things we compromise on with our wider culture. We, we read so much of ourselves in what you said to these ancient churches when we're honest and when we allow your spirit to search our hearts. And we pray that, that that searching, that good work would continue, not just today while we're gathered here, but would continue during the week as we think about what it is that we might do to, to guard ourselves somewhat better in terms of what we're committed to. Are, are we trying to hold fast to you, Jesus, and also to have one hand holding on to a bunch of other things that are, that are actually hurting us? Give us the, the strength and the courage uh, to even make those kinds of changes for, for the health of our homes and our families uh, if, if we need to take some steps there, given uh, what might be distracting us, what might be uh, areas where we willingly do things that, that we know probably we ought not to do, uh, where we even willingly do things that we might call persecution if somebody told us we had to do those things. That's kind of a scary thought, Lord, but it's a real thought, and I pray that you would help us to take that as seriously as we ought and take our commitment to you as seriously as we ought. But also, Lord, help us to keep keep that truth of who you are before us at all times. Keep before us that you are the one that holds the authority of judgment to say what is right and true, and you are the one who holds the promise of our reward and that our reward is not just a temporary one, but an eternal one. And as we think about that, may we take joy and comfort in the fact that you will give us a name and a reward that will last forever. It's in the name of that one we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.